Speaking of voting rights legislation, if this isn't passed, do you still believe the upcoming election will be fairly conducted and its results will be legitimate? Well, it all depends on uh, whether or not we're able to make the case to the American people that some of this is being set up to try to alter the outcome of the election. That's an exchange at President Biden's marathon press conference this week, in which he appeared to leave open the door for Democrats to question the legitimacy of this year's congressional elections due to new voting laws being passed by Republican-controlled state legislatures. The comments came just as West Virginia Senator Joe Manchin was on the floor of the Senate, reaffirming that he would not go along with changing Senate filibuster rules, thereby effectively dooming the president's call for sweeping new federal laws that would override what GOP lawmakers are doing in the states. It was another crushing defeat for Biden, coming amid slipping poll numbers, rising inflation, a social spending plan stalled in the Senate, and a public weary and frustrated by a coronavirus that simply doesn't go away. How big of a defeat was this for the Biden White House and for Democrats in general? And what will it actually mean for this fall's midterms? We'll talk to Michael Waldman, president of the Brennan Center for Justice and author of the newly reissued book, The Fight to Vote, about those questions and much more on this episode of Skullduggery. I do solemnly swear that I will faithfully execute the office of president of the United States. And will, to the best of my ability, preserve, protect, and defend the Constitution of the United States. So help me God. 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 I'm Michael Isagoff, Chief Investigative Correspondent for Yahoo News. And I'm Dan Clydman, Editor-in-Chief of Yahoo News. And uh, our other co-host, Victoria Bassetti, can't be with us today, which is too bad because um, she has been uh, one of the folks on this voting rights issue. Uh, We've uh, frequently uh, clashed about it. But before we get to voting rights, and obviously there's a lot to talk about there, this was quite a week on the subjects we tend to cover in Skullduggery. First and foremost, Foremost, I think in significance, Fannie Willis, the Fulton County District Attorney, publicly disclosed that she is asking for a special grand jury to investigate Donald Trump and his allies over their efforts to pressure Georgia state officials to change the outcome of the election in that state. I predicted, I think, oh, nearly a year ago when Fannie Willis first suggested she was looking at this, that this was potentially the most serious legal threat to Donald Trump for a number of reasons. One is there's that tape with Trump specifically asking for just the right number of votes that could change the outcome of the election, one more than we need. And plus, she's Fulton County. She's got a Fulton County grand jury. If the case goes to trial, it'll be a Fulton County jury. She'd have a pretty good shot at getting a conviction. I think this is clearly one to watch. Well, first of all, we're going to be talking a lot more about this case uh, in the coming weeks and months. And it's been overshadowed by the dramatic and uh, terrible events of, of January 6th. But you're exactly right. Is a legal matter. This is where I think Donald Trump um, has the most criminal exposure. 
And um, I was looking at the letter that Fannie Willis wrote to the chief judge of the Fulton County Superior Court in which he requested permission to open this special grand jury. And it sounds like, I'm not sure of this, but it, it's, it sounds like she actually has not really had a lot of subpoena power so far. That She hasn't had subpoena power. Right. She hasn't had any subpoena power. And so she's gotten as far as, as she has gotten here. And by the way, I'll read from this letter because what, what she says is that the district attorney's office has received information indicating a reasonable probability that the state of Georgia's administration of elections in 2020, including the state's election of the president of the United States, was subject to possible criminal disruptions. Now, that's kind of dry, legal, caveated language. But you read between the lines and what she's already said to reporters. She gave an interview recently to the AP in which they said they're making good progress. And you get the sense that uh, they've got a lot of momentum here and they may be heading, headed toward, maybe I should say, uh, headed toward criminal charges. One other thing in this letter that is uh, noteworthy is that you know she points out that a number of witnesses that they've tried to speak to have not voluntarily been willing to come forward and said that they would only testify in response to a subpoena. The one that she mentions by name is Brad Raffsenberger, who told us on this podcast right. that he that he would cooperate, but he has not done so so far. When she gets this grand jury, that may be one of the first subpoenas that she issues, and he will uh, he will have to testify. Right, and we should point out that when Brad Raffensperger appeared on Skullduggery, it was entirely voluntary. We did not subpoena him for his. Oh, <laughs> uh, uh, if only we had testimony. subpoena power! If, if, if only, only we had subpoena power. Um, right, but also I should point out that Willis may benefit from a mountain of new evidence that the January 6th committee is about to receive or may already have received from the National Archives as a result of the Supreme Court's decision Thursday night to deny the president's request to block a transfer of his White House records to the January 6th committee. This is a potential big deal politically for the president, but it also could include a lot of documents relating to his efforts in Georgia, which will benefit Fannie Willis. You know, the first thing I wanted to say about this is we spent a lot of time on this podcast talking about how the Trump lawyers and Trump's allies have been able to stonewall uh, this uh, January 6th investigation by filing lawsuits and, you know, going to the courts and, and, and just trying to slow the whole process down. And there was a sense in which they'd be able to do this forever and just kind of run the clock out. But it does say something <laughs> that we still have some shred of the rule of law in this country because the Supreme Court ruled on Thursday night and almost immediately the National Archives turned all of those documents over to the special committee. And uh, you can imagine what uh, the uh, members of that committee and their aides are. They must be salivating going over it. Some of the documents in there are going to be pretty interesting. I mean, all records relating to any movements and meetings that the president had on January 6th. There's something called the Daily Diary, which tracks, literally tracks presidential movements and meetings and phone calls. Kylie uh, McEnany's talking points on January 6th various handwritten notes. And here's the one that relates directly to Fannie Willis, all information relating to pressure campaign in the states. And so there is at least the possibility that there were discussions and maybe memos about specifically about what they were trying to do in, in Georgia leading up to the call to Brad Raffsenberger. 
Right. But if you're a uh, TV producer, the one you're focused on is something that was uh, outlined in the committee's letter to Ivanka Trump requesting her testimony. And, uh, you know, among the many things they wanted to ask her about uh, was her conversations with her father on January 6th, when she reportedly went in twice to try to get him to make a public statement telling his supporters to stop the violence at the Capitol and leave the um, conversation that Keith Kellogg, Pence's chief national security advisor had with Trump in which he was importuning him to try to do the same thing. But the one that leapt out at me is, uh, quoting from the letter, from the committee's letter here, President Trump ultimately filmed filmed a video statement from the Rose Garden, which was not released until 4.17 p.m. that finally instructed the rioters to leave the Capitol. The select committee understands that multiple takes of the video were filmed but not utilized. Information in the select committee's possession suggests the president failed in the initial clips to ask the rioters to leave and that the select committee has sought copies of those unused clips from the National Archives. Well, now as a result of the Supreme Court ruling, they're going to get those unused clips. And one can only imagine when we get to watch them how potentially damaging that could be just seeing Trump refusing to say, stop the violence, stop the mayhem. Or who knows? You could imagine him going in further. Like, have you found Mike Pence yet? (laughs) (laughs) But listen, I mean, the legal jargon that we, uh, the Latin Latinism that we throw around on this uh, podcast occasionally is that goes to uh, you know how to prove a criminal case is mens rea, right. uh, which is a s- state of mind, and uh, it is uh, possible that in those video outtakes, you know, not just the m- members of the of the one six committee, but prosecutors working for Merrick Garland, who, you know possibly are looking to make a criminal case, although there's uh, no evidence that they're anywhere close to that. that. But that they might be very interested in those outtakes because it would go to his uh, state of mind, his mens rea. So there's going to be a lot coming out um, of of the committee, and um, I'm uh, I'm sure we'll be discussing. Right. And what do you make of the fact that all three of the Trump appointees to the Supreme Court went along with the refusal to take up the former president's case. The only uh, dis- dissenting vote was Clarence Thomas. There was a kind of a partial dissent uh, from Brett Kavanaugh, who... That was a limited dissent by Kavanaugh. He went along with the fundamental decision to order that the archives turn the documents over. Y- y- you know, exactly. But what was interesting to me was that the Supreme Court didn't even get to the question of who owns the privilege and whether a former president can invoke... Uh, executive privilege. So that that's may still be unsettled. What they ruled uh, was that Trump's desire to maintain the confidentiality of his communications when he was president is just outweighed by the need of the Congress uh, to, you know, do a full investigation and accounting of the attack on the Capitol and, and the effort to disrupt the certification of the 2020 election. Right. And we should point out that this decision by the court basically destroys the legal arguments of Mark Meadows and Steve Bannon for not cooperating with the committee, both of whom cited Trump's executive privilege 
claims as grounds for why they could not uh, submit to an interview or turn over certain yeah. material. Now they don't have that excuse. And, I, yeah, uh, I, I hadn't thought about that, and I didn't see it in any of the coverage, but it sounds exactly right that they don't have a legal leg to stand on at this point. So yeah. this is a this is a huge you know victory for the one six committee and a blow to the Trump people who were trying to avoid testimony, I would think. We'll see how it plays out. What what this could result in, and it'll be interesting to see whether Ivanka Trump goes this route, is they can still always invoke the Fifth Amendment. And um, they could point to Fannie Willis and the possibility that Merrick Garland and the Justice Department may want to bring a criminal case, even though there's not much evidence that they are looking at that. It's still a possibility. And so if they want to take the political and PR hit for that, which they can certainly do, it may not get the committee the actual testimony that it's seeking. Not that getting Ivanka or Bannon or Meadows is actually going to produce useful information anyway. There's always that. My other question is, I think I know the answer, but does this have any bearing at all on whether the committee would subpoena Donald Trump himself? You know, that's I, I think that they're going to punt on that for a while till the very end. And, you know, the question is going to be what's what do you get from subpoenaing Donald yeah, Trump? Yeah, I a, mean, lot of, a lot of theater, <laughs> a lot of theater. What they I would think end up doing is simply, uh, you know, sending him a bunch of written questions and let him answer however he wants. Yeah, that turned out real well in the Mueller investigation. <laughs> well, <laughs> not, not for Mueller, but at least it avoided uh, the, uh, the theatrics of uh, Donald Trump on the witness stand. Anyway, before we get to Waldman, I just want to return to that opening clip we played of uh, Biden's press conference in which he seems to you know, leave open or question whether this year's uh, congressional elections will be legitimate. You know, we certainly heard enough about questioning election results uh, during 2020 and 2021. But what I was uh, amused by is Jen Psaki uh, on Friday morning is playing cleanup for the president. And uh, she suggests that what we just what we all heard the president say is not really what he said. What she wrote is, let's be clear, at POTUS was not casting doubt on the legitimacy of the 2022 election. He was making an opposite point in 2020. A record number of voters turned out in the face of a pandemic and election officials made sure they could vote and have those votes counted. All you have to do is listen to the question that the president was asked. It was about the upcoming election in 2022, not the 2020 election that just passed. So, um, uh, you know, give uh, Saki some points for trying to spin this in some positive way. It is the opposite of what you think it is. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Right. I mean, look, it, it is what Biden, the way Biden re responded to that question yesterday is, first of all, is the reason that his aides have not wanted him to do any press conferences. This is only the second one um, he's done since he's been in office, and I'm not sure there'll be any more. <laughs> right. This. We uh, should point out that there was other cleanup the White House had to do Friday, including Biden did his own cleanup when he, you know, said that uh, 
Putin may do a minor incursion, in, incursion into and Ukraine, and that would be okay. Seems right? to suggest that that was okay. But look, it's that that famous Michael Kinsley line, you know, in both of these instances, that a gaffe is when uh, you blurt out the truth. And I think in both of these instances, you know, internally inside the White House, uh, he probably does believe that. 2024, 2022, and then 2024, you know, there'll be questions about the legitimacy of the election. And and he probably did say, look, we're not going to go to war if there's a minor incursion in Ukraine and, you know, let, let the Russians uh, do their thing, save face, and then we'll, and that'll be our, our off-ramp from, from this crisis. Um, so, you know, that's Joe Biden. <laughs> that's Joe Biden. All right. Well, we've got a, a great guest to talk about all things voting rights with Michael Waldman of the Brennan Center. So let's get to it. All right. We are now joined by Michael Waldman, president of the Brennan Center for Justice, former top speechwriter for President Bill Clinton. Uh, Michael, welcome to Skullduggery. Thank you so much for having me. So obviously you and the Brennan Center have been at the forefront of the push for new federal voting rights laws went down to a rather resounding, crushing defeat on the floor of the Senate Thursday night, thanks to the refusal of Senators Manchin and Cinema to go along with changing Senate filibuster rules. Two questions to start out. One is, was there anything the White House and the president could have done differently that might have led to a different outcome? And secondly, I want to ask you about the comment the president made during his press conference that the White House has been trying to clean up all morning when asked about whether the 2022 midterms will be viewed as legitimate. He answers, it all depends, thereby seeming to throw some doubt as to whether the upcoming elections will be accepted by Democratic voters. And I want to get your take on that. So with those two questions, have at it. Well, how was your week? Is <laughs> part of my answer. Yeah. Uh, look, this was a very big moment in the long history of the fight for democracy, the fight for voting rights in our country. We argued, and I, I continue to believe that the stakes were really high and the choice was pretty stark. If it is in fact the case that we have, as we do, a wave of new laws all across the country already in response to the big lie, in response to the slander that this was stolen to make it harder to vote. And on top of that, as you know, there are what one might call election sabotage laws not only affecting who can vote and how they vote, but changing who counts the votes, taking nonpartisan election officials out of the picture, threatening election officials, criminalities, jobs, all those kinds of things we know about. That has irrefutably been happening up until if it is the case that the Senate and the House and the House, that Congress cannot pass national protections for voting rights even though the White House is for it, even though it passed the House, because even though there's a majority of the Senate for these bills because of the filibuster, and the courts will not take voting rights or deal with gerrymandering, that gives a green light to states to do their worst. 
it gives a green light to states to abuse their own people. So I guess I would say, among other things, during the course of the debate, you, you would hear people say, oh, you know, this law isn't that bad. Oh, that one isn't so terrible. And part of my answer is, why do we think this snapshot of right at this moment is as bad as it can get? There is very little stopping these states from doing their worst when it comes to federal action and federal law, which in the whole course. OK, the there were there were two questions on the table. Number one, could they have done something differently that would have led to a different outcome? And two, I just want to say you seem like you're endorsing President Biden's throwing doubt on the upcoming legitimacy of the elections, which has all sorts of. I don't know if I would. I don't know if I would describe it as being about the legitimacy of the election. I think it is undeniable that in a lot of states, state governments are doing what they can to make the elections less fair and to make the running of the elections more partisan. And I wouldn't describe that as being about legitimacy, but about basic threats to our democracy unfolding. So if the Republicans take control of the House in the fall, you will say what? Congratulations, I guess, in part. But, you know, midterm elections very often go to the party that is not in control of the White House. Gravitational pull of politics certainly would suggest that would be the case here Biden's approval rating is low. Gas prices are high. There's a, the, COVID depends on, there's a lot of reasons why the Republicans might take control of the House. But it is undeniably also true that the gerrymandering that has gone on in states as they draw the district lines will benefit the Republicans in significant ways, especially if there's even a mild tilt to the Republicans in the vote a lot of seats will tip into their laps. Today, the day after the Senate, while a majority endorsing the bills, refused to change the rules to enable them to actually pass. The lead story in Politico is now Republicans look at it and say, oh, you know what? We haven't been nearly aggressive enough in our gerrymandering. Let's really go in now over the next few months and really gerrymander. So there are a number of ways in which this election could be unfair, could have problems. There may be a lot of reasons why one party or another wins an election, but it shouldn't be because the rules are being tilted in their direction. In terms of the question about the White House, I think that Democrats as a general matter over many years, including over the past year, have not nearly enough prioritized this issue of the health of our democracy. And a moment when Donald Trump has continued as the dominant figure in the Republican Party to focus on those very issues, but by spewing his falsehoods. I think the Democrats should prioritize standing up for our democracy. I would say that the House under Speaker Pelosi and the Senate really significantly under Senator Schumer, who we've worked with a lot, really did step up. The White House, we made clear all through the year, we thought could have done more. In the end, President Biden and the White House when they got involved, got involved in a pretty significant way. I think that uh, we were making the point all along to everybody under the sun that timing mattered, that earlier was better, at least in part because just of the way these gerrymanders and other things were unfolding. So I, I think that I would very much like it. I thought that the speech the president gave on the commemoration of January 6th was the best speech of his presidency. 
And I think that that tone and that focus on the health of our democracy will do a lot going forward. And, you know, I would certainly have been happy if it had happened earlier. But sooner or later, I would say it's important to not lose sight of Senator Manchin and Senator Sinema and the choice they are making. They say they're for protecting voting rights. Senator Manchin actually spent months working on this bill, rewriting the bill to his own specifications. Everybody knows that the filibuster, as it is now used, is not in the Constitution. It hasn't even been in practice for that long. There are 160 exceptions to the filibuster. They had to make a choice between protecting voting rights and somehow protecting the Senate institution that they say trying to protect. The question for them is, what are they going to do to protect voting rights? Because if they don't come up with some path forward, then they have made sure and made clear that uh, voters are in a pretty rough spot. Okay, so you talked about sooner or later, and you know your book puts this fight into the, the long kind of historical context. And I think you say something about uh, the fight for voting rights has not unfolded in a kind of a straight line, but. You know, right now, Democrats and, and, and activists and people like yourself have a choice about where the fight moves. And, you know, this issue has been sort of divided into two parts. There's the kind of suppression, voter suppression piece of it, and then there's the subversion or the sabotage piece of it, as I think you just referenced it a little while ago. And as you know, there is a kind of a building bipartisan move uh, to act on the subversion piece of it, specifically reforming uh, the Electoral Count Act, which is, you know, how the Trump team tried to, they tried to exploit that act and its ambiguities to sort of push this sort of paper coup after the election. So I guess I'm interested in hearing your assessment of, of where things stand in terms of the Electoral Count Act reform and um, whether you support it, what you support, or is it a trap for Democrats? Oh, look, I think it's nice. <laughs> I think it's a good thing to fix the Electoral Count Act. I don't think it is remotely as significant as the things in the Freedom to Vote John Lewis Act. It, and it's not as significant in those things in making sure that the elections aren't subverted. The Electoral Count Act specifically refers to rather incomprehensible law that was passed in the 1880s about how the, how the Congress counts the electoral votes. And as we know, on January 6th, that was part of what they were trying to exploit. But it doesn't deal with all the different ways that the election was being stolen up until January 6th. And so I think it, it, it could be a good thing to clarify its provisions, to make it harder to challenge the election. You know, people talk about making it so that you can't have only one House member and one senator challenge an electoral slate, making it clear, although it is already clear that the vice president's job is to sit there while they count the votes and not, you know, stage a coup. But I don't think so. It's not that I think that it's a, a, a bad thing, but I don't think that it is any kind of substitute for the protection of voting rights and dealing with all these other things, including the election subversion and sabotage that these bills did. But I think the immediate legislative strategy for what next isn't clear yet. I do have a question. I think that it is certainly very possible that now that the filibuster has stopped these other bills, there could be a sudden cooling of interest in the Electoral Count Act on a part of a number of the Republicans, at least, who say that this is what they want to do instead. It is a question 
do we really think that you're going to get 10 Republicans to vote for a bill that Donald Trump will say is a rebuke of him and a rebuke of the big lie and a rebuke of his conduct? Or will those Republicans scatter to the hills? Maybe not, but certainly there's plenty of evidence to suggest that they, their courage will, will not last more than a, a second or two. Okay. So then where is, I mean, you, you've said that you're really concerned about particularly what's going on in, in the states um, and also you know gerrymandering and all of these different issues. I, I think, what is there, like 33 laws in 19 states that have been passed in the last yeah, since the election to, to restrict the vote, you know, there's the concern about partisan takeovers of county um, election boards. Where is the Brennan Center taking the fight? What's your priority and where do you think, you know, you can make a difference? Well, you're exactly right in that, you know, look, there we continue to believe and I know that a lot of the the congressional leaders who are fighting for this continue to believe that there has to be some kind of path forward on federal legislation. But that is not the only thing that needs to happen. And we are very focused in any event on what's going on in the states. There's a number of strategies that still have teeth to protect the right to vote and protect against election subversion. For example, state constitutional law and state constitutions and courts. Every state but one has an explicit protection for the right to vote in their constitution. Those have been underutilized. The Brennan Center sued the state of Ohio on its gerrymandered maps. Even though they have an election commission, it, uh, the Republicans there manipulated to push maps that were just as gerrymandered as before. We sued and, and got those overturned by the Ohio Supreme Court. In other words, under Ohio law, there are a lot of opportunities potentially for that kind of thing around the country. Another area where there's a lot of work that needs to be done in coming months is the protection of election officials and the local machinery of, of, uh, of elections. As you know, these election officials turn out to have a very significant role. It's not, not only is there not a national election, there's not even 50 state elections. They're generally run by counties or even at lower level. And election officials are under attack right now. We did a survey of election officials that Benenson Strategy Group did with us. One out of three election officials has been threatened. And a number of them have been threatened with violence. And these are not, you know, the most glamorous jobs. And these are not people who are in it for the big bucks. Um, and people are leaving their jobs. And there is a, as Donald Trump himself said explicitly the other day, a really concerted effort to move out these nonpartisan election officials and move into these posts, people who believe in the big lie or, or will implement the big lie. So we're working with them. We're actually working on the disinformation that they all tell us floods their work. There are legal protections, a lot of different things like that. But there's no doubt that there's a lot happening in the states. And it's a big challenge for voting rights groups and others to actually be able to respond. Let me uh, take a step back. Um, your newly reissued book, The Fight to Vote, is a, a historical look at voting rights uh, since the founding of the republic and how it has evolved over the years. And obviously, one thing that you deal with is the passage of the 15th Amendment after the Civil War, which guaranteed the right to vote. So if these state laws 
really did what you argue they do, which is their target people of color to restrict the right to vote to them. The 15th Amendment is pretty explicit. The right of citizens of the United States to vote shall not be denied or abridged by the United States or by any state on account of race, color, or previous condition of servitude. Why can't the Brennan Center just go into court, federal court, and have these laws declared unconstitutional if they really did what you argue that they do? Well, unfortunately, we would need a time machine to do that because the federal courts have taken the 15th Amendment and the 14th Amendment from the beginning and interpreted them in a way that limited their reach, especially the 15th Amendment. Those Jim Crow laws from the late... It seems pretty explicit or abridged by any state. If a state passed a law saying black people can't vote, that would be struck down under any imaginable scenario by the 15th Amendment. But laws that look neutral on their face, but in fact have a racially disparate impact, were upheld by the courts. And that's why it was so important to have the Voting Rights Act of 1965, which was designed specifically to implement that very provision of the 15th Amendment. The 15th Amendment, interestingly, there's language in there that was pretty significant that might not seem that significant to our modern eyes, which is it says Congress has the power to implement this. They said that about the 14th Amendment, too. That was because they did not trust the federal courts, which had just done Dred Scott. And in fact, it was only when the Congress, when federal law passed the Voting Rights Act to implement the 15th Amendment, that it had teeth and meaning. Because again, uh, poll taxes, literacy tests, and all of those kinds of things that we know disenfranchised millions of people did not actually have uh, an explicitly racial phrasing such that the the courts were willing to back Well, by the way, I just want to point out, um, just to your point, Mike, that wasn't the Brennan Center, but the U.S. Justice Department did exactly what you know, you you just suggested uh, could be done, which is, you know, they went in, they, they sued the state of Georgia. Right. Um, not not and, under and, the 15th and, Amendment. Yes. But. Well, well, wait a second. This is Merrick Garland's, when he announced it, this is what he said. Our complaint alleges that recent changes to Georgia's election laws were enacted with the purpose of denying or abridging the right of black Georgians to vote on account of their race or color. Now, that's in, in violation of Section 2 of the Voting Rights Act. But the, just to ask Michael here, but that's a, that's a real uphill battle legally, isn't it? I mean, that's not going to be an easy case for them to prevail on. It is more of an uphill battle than it was a year ago. The Voting Rights Act, most significant part of the Voting Rights Act was gutted in the 2013 case, Shelby County. That was the provision of the Voting Rights Act that had been most effective, and then really in a lot of ways was the most effective civil rights law there was, was called preclearance. It was section five. And it was, it said that a state with a history of discrimination in voting had to get permission in advance, have be pre-cleared by the Justice Department or a federal court to change their voting laws. And it made an extraordinary difference. It created the modern world we're in. Well, as you may remember in the Shelby County case, Chief Justice Roberts wrote the opinion and and he said basically, oh, well, you know, that was then, this is now. Black voters and white voters are both voting in large numbers. He didn't say it out loud, but, you know, Barack Obama is president. And therefore, in effect, 
that kind of racism is not a factor. And so, you know, times have changed. That was what Robert said. This is where Ruth Bader Ginsburg did her dissent. And it was it was it was the dissent that kind of made her the notorious RBG. She said that's like standing in a rainstorm, holding an umbrella and not getting wet and therefore deciding you can throw away your umbrella because you're not wet. The removal of Section 5, the removal of that Strong Voting Rights Act, led to the passage of numerous laws around the country that once would have been stopped that have a racially significant impact. But then this goes to the Section 2 that you just mentioned, Dan. There was a part of the Voting Rights Act that was still on the books, And that was section two. And it said you could sue after the fact when there's laws that are that are bad. And it was a lot harder and you had to prove more stuff, but you could do it. And in fact, section two was used by the Brennan Center and all the other voting rights groups quite a bit over the past decade to challenge laws like Georgia's law, to challenge North Carolina's law, which a court ruled targeted black voters with almost surgical provision to challenge the Texas voter ID, which we were involved in. That's the kind of notorious voter ID where you could not use your student ID from the University of Texas, but you could use your concealed carry gun permit as your ID. All of those were under Section 2. This past year, in a case that didn't get nearly enough attention, called Brnovich, the Supreme Court decided it was time to gut the other part of the Voting Rights Act and basically make it very, very hard to use Section 2 to challenge laws like Georgia. So we don't know. But, you know, one thing that people say is, hey, take a look, these voting laws, you know, the impact isn't so great. Look at this turnout statistic. Look at that turnout statistic. And people don't fully understand, I think, when they say that, that these laws were blocked by the courts or softened considerably by the courts. We have not The vote suppressors have not let their full freak flag fly yet, and now they're going to have a chance. And again, I think looking at this the way, you know, through the prism of our history, from the beginning of the country, a lot of these issues have been with us. In other words, there's always been fights over who could vote, how they voted, groups wanting a seat at the table and others wanting to stop them. And in many ways, that's what we're seeing now. And it's not the first time going back to the 1776, when Ben Franklin and John Adams took very different views of voting rights in that period. And certainly a lot of it has, you know, for a long time, it was about class and and requiring people to own property, white men to own property, to vote. It was about gender. For a long time, there were religious obstacles placed in front of basically Catholics and Jews who were immigrants from voting in the late 1800s. But a lot of it now comes down to race and the changing demographics of the country. It's unfortunate. It's ugly, but it's not new. What is new, I would say, is this new Trump factor, which is we have never had in this country this kind of authoritarian movement, certainly dominating one of the political parties, saying the whole election is fake. Democracy is rigged. We need to change who counts the votes. There was a statement by Trump a week or two ago. He gave a a video to party group in Pennsylvania in which he said, I'm going to paraphrase it, doesn't matter how people vote. What matters is who counts the votes and how you count the vote. And that is literally word for word something. And, you know, this is like you're not supposed to use this analogy. Literally something Joseph Stalin said. And it is an, it's the kind of thing you might hear in Hungary, you might hear it in Turkey, 
You might hear it in countries that are seeing re real retrenchment in their basic democratic institutions. And that's what's new here. So that's on top of the other thing. All right. Let me can I uh, let me uh, break in here on, on a few points. You mentioned the uh, Bronovich case speak in Arizona. Up for, speak up for Stalin. Yeah, I would. Uh, <laughs> yes. Can I, you journalists, you journalists will appreciate the following. I, I am a great fan of procrastinating by reading Times Machine, the old New York Times archives yeah. online. And, I, and I'm a great fan of the podcast Revolutions, just like yours, a wonderful podcast by Mike Duncan, which is a history of all these revolutions. He's in the middle, finally, after hundreds of episodes of the Russian Revolution. And I've started trying to keep up with the episodes in real time. And the day after the Russian Revolution, the, the, the Bolshevik Revolution, the Great October Socialist Revolution, the New York Times covered it. And the story said, local man at center of revolt, Bronx man Leon Trotsky is made good over in his home country with a big picture of Trotsky and where he lived and what the neighbors thought. So those of us who started out in in local journalism, learn yeah. to always look for the yeah. local. Local man makes good. That, yeah, <laughs> right. Um, reminds me of a uh, um, of a uh, headline once in a National Lampoon back in the mat. We remember when they had the magazine, National Lampoon magazine. Yeah, they yeah, did, yeah. They did a, a riff. Um, you know. Area couple can't be found as Japan is destroyed by an earthquake or <laughs> yeah. something. Right. Anyway, uh, back to um, uh, the topic at hand. You mentioned the uh, Brunovich case in Arizona, and I should point out that that grew out of a lawsuit brought by one Mark Elias, who is not the lawyer for American democracy or the future of the Constitution or voting. He's the lawyer for the Democratic Party. In fact, he represents every Democratic Party organ, every Democratic Party super PAC, every Democratic Party's dark money 501c4, most of which is dedicated to enhancing get-out-the-vote operations by the Democrats targeting low-interest, low-intensity voters who are not inclined to vote if left to their own devices. And a lot of us look at what's going on here in the states as sort of a, a battle between two political parties, both of which are trying to tilt the playing field somewhat in their direction. In the case of Mark Elias and the Democrats, it's to boost their GOTV efforts particularly in minority communities, because they know they will vote disproportionately for Democrats. So this is not really so much about suppressing votes or targeting people to prevent them from voting. It's about the how the elections are going to be played out and those get out the vote efforts, which does take away from the idea that our democracy is somehow in danger if Mark Elias's get out the vote efforts um, are somewhat restricted by some of these laws. Before you start, I got to say, Walden, you must be licking your chops because uh, rereading your book, I was struck. You you take on this exact line of arguing that Isakoff is presenting. Yeah, to you well, let's uh, come on. <laughs> Look, I, I, I on. think that it is a pure laboratory distillation of both sidesism to say that yeah. someone trying to make it so everyone can vote 
and someone trying to restrict people from voting, they're both working on voting. Nobody restrict people from parties clash about this stuff. Parties fight about it. But that ultimately and fundamentally, if we believe in democracy and believe in the basic precepts uh, of the country at its best, we should be happy when anybody's trying to make it so that folks can vote. It is interesting. So, first of all, Mark Elias can speak for himself and defend himself. Uh, it is not always the case that the interests of the Democratic Party align with what I support. He has taken different positions on issues, including redistricting and campaign finance from what the Brennan Center, for example, has done. But right now, we have an undeniable fact that there is a movement to try to restrict the voting, especially in ways that attack and affect black voters, Latino voters, Asian voters, the same voters who are over and over and over again locked out of the system. Yeah, but Michael, you're you're prime and, evidence. But let that. me just let me just finish about the fights that we're in right now. Again, I don't I just don't think I can blink away what's going on with Trump and the big lie in his movement. 2020, despite the pandemic and despite voter suppression and despite all the controversy, was the highest voter turnout since 1900 in the middle of a pandemic. And as Trump's own Homeland Security Department said, it was the most secure election in history. In other words, it was a very high turnout election. It was a high turnout election in part because state election officials, businesses and others really mobilized to make it so people could vote. It didn't help one party or another. It isn't the case that high turnout or low turnout, the Republicans actually did very well. The only one who didn't do so well was Trump. So I don't think that general issues of turnout and democracy have the partisan valence that some think. I think that these laws are mischievous and maliciously crafted in ways that specifically try to diminish the participation of voters of color. One example you use of the supposed targeting of people of color is that there are that they in call for photo IDs. This is something that's been around for a while. I mean, you're you're shaking your, I head, am shaking your head, but you you argue that 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 photo IDs are somehow discriminatory. I do not. And I'll make oh, well, the same some of them are. Let me save your let me save your breath. I am not against photo ID. I'm not against okay. voter ID, I should say. I think it makes sense for people to be who they say they are. I'm against requiring forms of ID that lots of people don't have. And about 11% of Americans do not have a driver's license or the similar kind of government documentation that they need. And these laws are not good government, goo-goo, nice, neutral laws. They are specifically crafted to make it so that they are forms of ID that some people have and other people don't. And courts have found this over and over and over again. But I'm not against voter ID, and I can point you to the pro-election integrity voter ID proposal the Brennan Center put out a few years ago, written by a colleague of mine who's no longer here because she's a federal court judge on the Second Circuit. But I, I, uh, I've, I've been quite clear about not having a problem with voter ID, but just with forms of ID that not everyone has or that are discriminatory. But you say fo the forms of ID that not everybody has. Look, uh, you want to board an airplane in this country, 
you have to show a photo ID. Yeah, targeting people of color for flight suppression. You but want to cash my, a check my, Mike, in this I country, go, you go to the bank. I, I, I love being on, on this podcast, but I can go anywhere I want to get Fox News talking points. It is number one. I'm not giving you Fox News. Talking it is points. oddly enough you not true that you actually need a skullduggery talking points. Right. Okay, but photo, yeah. photo. I, why are you asking about voter ID? Because people are talking about it. Why are they talking about it? Because it polls well. The state laws in 2021 are not voter ID laws. The federal bill that we've yeah. just been debating actually yeah. has a voter ID provision in it, the first federal voter ID provision, Joe Manchin insisted on putting it in. The voting rights groups grudgingly went along and it's fine, but voter ID is actually not an issue here. The issue relating to the elections in 2021 and this legislation are things like automatic voter registration, early voting, uh, vote by mail and other things like that that are and well, where how things are well, counted. It's not about voter ID. So anyway, I, I'm saving saving you. Uh, and I should point out, I should point out that in the Georgia law that you have used as Exhibit A, that's so terrible, the voter ID provisions include just in the, your last four digits of your social security number to get an absentee, to cast an absentee ballot, something that 99.9% of Georgia eligible jo Georgia voters have. So that suggests that there's a very, it's de minimis at best, the impact of asking people to just Put the last four digits of your social security number down so it can be checked. That's hardly, uh, you know, Jim Crow 2.0. Sen Senator, if I may answer the question. Uh, first of do. all, right, rewind the tape. I don't have a problem with voter ID. I, again, I, I have a problem with okay. voter ID that is racially discriminatory, which some are, or that some people don't have, which is a fact. Number one. Well, well no, but, but what's racially discriminatory? Two, about asking people to show some form. There's of nothing racially discriminatory about asking people to show some form of identification, asking people to show identification that people who drive cars have, but people who don't drive cars don't have might in fact be just might in fact have a disparate racial impact. In fact, it does. There are plenty of states that have voter photo ID requirements and voter ID requirements that are quite strong and not discriminatory. Rhode Island, Michigan, and other states like that, that are non-controversial. This is a, I know we're on a podcast, so, but I'll keep it PG. No, if, you can say this anything is a on this bullshit podcast. argument. Voter ID <laughs> is not the issue. It polls well and they hand out the pieces of paper to the Fox News hosts. But literally, it is not what anybody is talking about. What people yeah, are talking yeah. about are the things that actually are the way to cut back on voting right now. Early voting, vote by mail, who counts the votes, voter registration and all of these other things. Michael, there are 15 days of early voting in Georgia, uh, in addition to no excuse absentee ballots. Yes. Georgia is Georgia has had has had good laws and they were heading in the wrong direction. Th this law, interestingly, and this goes back to what I was saying about the open terrain that now exists two or three days before this, the Georgia law was passed. It was much worse. It ended absentee balloting for anyone under 65, basically, so that basically older white voters could vote absentee 
and everybody else really couldn't. It ended early voting. Yes, there was still early voting. It ended on one day, the Sunday before Election Day, the day that black churches vote. It undid, it overturned automatic. This is before the bill. You're talking about a bill that didn't yes, pass. It, it ended automatic voter registration, which Brian Kemp correctly had put into place. What happened? There was a big controversy. The Republican lieutenant governor in the state refused to preside over the state Senate if this bill moved through. Companies like Delta and Coca-Cola objected, and they significantly pulled back on the worst elements of the bill. They also added the part that had the authoritarian provisions of taking out of the counting. Remember Brad Raffensperger? He, yes. He's the Secretary of we State. We had him on the, Secretary on the show. Of State of Georgia. Yes. He, he, he didn't agree with us on a lot of things, but when push came to shove, he showed real courage when Donald Trump called him and said, find us 11,000 votes. And instead of doing it, he taped the call and released it to the public. And, he, and as a result, they took the Secretary of State out of the decision making of who won the election. And they're handing it in Georgia and in Texas, and they're pushing to do it in other places. They're handing it to partisans in the state legislature. Again, right Brad now, Raffensperger was a partisan. He was an elected he Republican, was, but he also partisan was, Trump supporter, and he did the right thing. But when push came to shove, he was heading an agency of nonpartisan election officials, and he stood his ground. And Mike, by the way, the, the General Assembly in Georgia just appointed to the state election board a woman named uh, Janice Johnston, who believes that the election was, you know, illegitimate. So this is this is starting to happen. But I wanted to ask Michael about the you were talking about the various provisions in the Senate legislation that went down that uh, would have expanded access to voting. And there's one that's always stumped me why this hasn't been a bigger issue that activists have have uh, really pushed for. Uh, And that is um, it was going to make Election Day a national holiday. And I think about other democracies around around the world, Europe in particular, you know, where like in Sweden, I, I think voter turnout is close to 90 percent. In, in France and Italy, it's, you know, 80 percent. Our vo- voter turnout in 2020 was 66 percent. That was a huge. Right. It's much lower. And I think and, and, I, and I think it may that may have been, you know, the, the Trump bump. You know that the Election Day as a national holiday is, was proposed by Joe Manchin in in the Freedom to Vote Act. It's a good idea. Folks have not who's against th- it. Nobody's, who's nobody's against, against, who's against, why would against, against it? No, there are in our country. There's a big difference between Sweden and the United States. In Sweden, they take vacation. <laughs> and in the United States, national holidays is an excuse for sales and shopping. And it doesn't actually necessarily give anybody any more ability to vote than it not well, being a national holiday. Sunday, but do but it what on turns Sundays. out to be most significant in the U.S. is First of all, we've now had the experience for the first time of a lot of people voting by mail, although in seven states, that's how they've done it all up until now. And it was never even a teeny weeny bit controversial. It was there were lots of things. Voter ID. We heard about it in this issue, in this area that are, that are more controversial. Vote by mail was principally something done by elderly Republican retirees in places like Florida. Right. In places like Arizona. Arizona. And in, in Western states like Utah and California and Washington and Oregon, where where they have a pretty well-run system and has never been controversial until Trump suddenly until Trump discovered it up. early voting, the combination of early vo- ample early voting and access to vote by mail, not universal vote by mail, 
which lots of people don't want to do and lots of states aren't ready to handle. That combination is is probably in our country, given the way we work, the best. I think uh, election day as a holiday is a good thing. I think that it is not as good as ample early voting. You, you know, the reason we have election day is the first Monday, first Tuesday after the first Monday is not because it's in the Constitution. It was a statute passed in the 1840s for the convenience of farmers at the time. And it, it had to be on a Tuesday and it had to do with when the market day was and it couldn't be during the, the, the harvest, but it couldn't be during winter because you had to be able to ride your horse in the winter to the place where they did the voting. So it wound up only being on this day and we've sort of been stuck with it ever since. So anything that is more creative about people being able to vote in different ways, I'm all for. I, I, with, the, with the exception of online voting, which, which we and the Heritage Foundation agree is utterly insecure. Mm-hmm. And yeah, I mean, I, you know, look, uh, uh, people talk about convenience to vote. I mean, the most convenient way to vote is, you know, I get on my iPhone and I text in my vote before I even get out of my pajamas uh, in the morning. That would be totally convenient, but I don't think it would be accepted as a as a credible way. It to, would not um, be. Your, your next book about Vladimir Putin's influence in America's elections would be about that. Okay. But, you know, on the uh, early voting issue, uh, this is something I'm a little divided on. I mean, I I get that it's, you know, if if people want to avoid long lines on Election Day, it's advantageous to be able to have earlier opportunities. On the other hand, things happen during election campaigns. Things come out towards the end that actually informs voters and influences them. And if you let a whole bunch of voters vote, you know, in early to mid-October, maybe before the last presidential debate, before the last, you know, oppo drop from one of the two candidates, you're depriving voters of vital information they might want to see before they cast their ballot. That's the downside. And I, I, I think there's uh, I've always thought as well that, you know, there was actually a mobilization aspect to it where people get excited about elections as the closer they are uh, and you can get more people to turn out that way. But uh, it, again, it has turned out to be the case that it's been valuable to people, even though even though there, there, there is that downside, as you describe it. Ironically enough, one of the outlandish demands that the the RNC is making on the debate commission is that the debates have to be earlier precisely for this reason. And I think they have a point in that I realize their goal is that Trump won't ever have to debate, but, but, you know, you can make it so that the debates happen before, before, uh, for the early voting, but again, it, people like these. Options. All right. I was going to say the headline on this episode could be Brennan center endorses RNC proposal on debates. Um, yeah, you know the, the the part about uh, who hosts it. I can't comment on any of the other stuff, but but timing. <laughs> okay. makes sense. Yeah, yeah, I had just one one last question that I wanted to ask you is just is in terms of the laws that the states have passed uh, to restrict voting or uh, make it less people, convenient, or 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 that would allow for you know what some people say is is uh, subversion of elections. Which concerns you the most? Uh, it doesn't have to be one, but, you know, and particularly in, in some of these states that the next election will actually, you know, be decided by, you know, battleground states like Wisconsin, 
Georgia, Arizona, whatever. What are the the laws that are really the most alarming? In your I would view? say, you know, and 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 it, a lot of this stuff does, in fact, happen at the states. And this is one of the points about the Electoral Count Act: is it it applies to precisely one election every four years. It does not apply to all, all the other hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of elections for federal office that that take place all over the place that are so tremendously important. I think the laws that concentrate the decision-making power in the hands of the state legislatures in a variety of different ways. And as I say, you had that in Georgia, you had it in Texas, and it's part of the proposals elsewhere, are particularly dangerous. The proponents of those laws are touting a completely imaginary constitutional theory. I shouldn't say it's completely imaginary. There's a con- They claim that the Constitution wants all decisions on elections to be made only by the state legislatures. They call this the independent state legislature doctrine. It's not a doctrine. Literally no court has ever found it. However, four Supreme Court justices right now seem to think it's a good idea. And it's going to be a major fight in the next year or two in the Supreme Court. They're pointing to the federal constitution's elections clause. The elections clause says uh, the legislature shall set the time, place, and manner of elections, but Congress has the power to override that. The elections clause was put into the Constitution, as I write in my book, The Fight to Vote, out in a new edition this week. On the first page, I actually talks about this. The elections clause was actually a major issue in the writing of the Constitution. It was put in there at the insistence of James Madison. He believed that state legislatures were corrupt and that they would be taken over by factions, we would call them political parties now, and that they would engage in what we now call vote suppression and gerrymandering. Now, they didn't call it gerrymandering because, you know, Elbridge Jerry was standing there and they hadn't invented the word yet, but it is literally what they're debating in the Constitutional Convention. The whole point was to curb the role of state legislatures in elections for this reason, but it had the word legislature in it. So you're now hearing claims that, oh, what that means is only legislatures, not state courts, not state constitutions, not election officials, not federal courts, but the most partisan, the most conservative, the most, frankly, Republican part of the whole government in the United States. They're the only ones who get to decide anything on elections. So all those laws that are being proposed, and we're going to see more of them this year than last year, along those lines are pretty bad. The other thing that I worry about in the states is the assault on election officials. In Texas, they made it a crime, criminal penalties for election officials who send out a ballot application for absentee ballots, to, unless unless somebody asks for it in, you know, in in triplicate. Numerous criminal penalties threatened to election officials, and in that rally in Arizona, which took place last week, where you not only had President Trump spewing his nonsense. But you had the Republican candidates for governor of Arizona and at least one of the Republican candidates for secretary of state, who is a QAnon adherent and a conspiracy theorist. And they all said one after another, what we need to do is send all the election officials to prison. That is, again, not something I think any of us really thought much about, uh, quite honestly, until recently. But that is a scary grassroots authoritarianism that I worry about a lot. Yeah, and no question that those sorts of comments and moves are are indeed scary. On the other hand, I should point out that there was a time we considered 
the state legislatures, laboratories of democracy. They were the ones closest to the people, elected by the people. And there is something a little bit off-putting about saying you want to preserve democracy by overriding or striking down laws elected by democratically elected state legislatures. Yeah, except when those laws violate the Constitution or people's rights, then then they do. Well, that's why my first question was, or one of my first questions was, you know, challenge it under the 15th Amendment. But anyway, people can get a much more fulsome account of the history of uh, the battles over voting rights by reading the newly reissued A Fight, The Fight to Vote by Michael Waldman, president of the Brennan Center. Michael, thank you for joining us. Thank you. Thank you.